You're listening to Business Casual, a podcast about making dollars and cents Aha. in commercial real estate. Welcome back, everybody, to Business Casual, making dollars and cents in commercial real estate. This is Tim, the commercial guy at Churchwell, and today we are tackling the issue of affordable housing. Well, at least we are going to start addressing it. I won't say that we're tackling it. Joining us today is John Napier. He's been with us before, and he's an experienced attorney and business partner. You know, he's got a demonstrated history of working in, the, in law, entrepreneurship, and the alternative dispute resolution ADR industry. He's the son of a naval aviator, grandson of a World War II vet. John Napier has spent a significant time on both the East and West Coast, many years in coastal Virginia area, working for some of the largest developers, investors, and brokers in the business, as well as representing new ventures and startup companies of all types. He is skilled in international mediation, arbitration, negotiation, business, and NGO development, as well as government entitlements and appeals. He employs a creative and solutions-oriented focus for each matter and client. He holds a Jewish doctor in law and a master's dispute resolution degree from Paradigm University, as well as a bachelor's degree in philosophy and religion from the College of William and Mary. He has worked professionally in North America, Africa, and Europe, and sits on the board of multiple nonprofit organizations focused on literacy tutoring, business education, and international accountability. John, welcome back. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And lately, he also ran for an elected position in the city of Virginia Beach. And coincidentally, one of his platforms is talking about affordable housing. That's right. right. Also joining us is Seth Quick. He's a chapter lead for Yimby in Hampton Roads. And I'm going to let him tell you what Yimby means. He was born and raised here in Virginia Beach area, but he has a degree in urban studies and city planning from Concordia University. Conco- I'm sorry, my eyes are bad here. Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. He is currently the sales manager and urban development coordinator for a local development company based here in Virginia Beach. He is also a licensed real estate agent. And his work with the MB started while he was doing an internship with one of our local planning departments. And he saw a huge contrast between what he learned at university and what was actually being practiced on the ground. He started the local chapter of EMB here in April 2022, and they just really started picking up in August of this past year. Since they've endorsed candidates in statewide elections, and they've supported several development and lo- developments and lobbied for statewide legislation on housing and rezoning regulations. They are also planning to come out in force in the 2024 election season, along with supporting individual projects throughout our region. Seth? Appreciate it. And can you start off by telling us, well, first of all, how'd you wind up in school in Canada and then how'd you wind up back here? Yeah, I think I was looking for um, a unique experience that wasn't going to be um, your standard college experience. And I, what I, after doing extensive research, I found that going to school in Canada was actually more affordable than going to school here. So packed my bags, moved out, told my parents, I'm like, by the way, moving to Canada. And yeah, I moved 2019. Um, got my own place and, you know, that worked out pretty well until COVID happened. And then that's how I went back up here. So finished school up online. So my school, you know, degree is from Canada, but two of those four years were, you know, online with COVID, of course. So yeah, COVID kind of messed everybody up. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, welcome back to Virginia Beach area. Thank you. So why don't you tell us what Yimby means? Yeah. So Yimby is kind of a play on words with the, it means yes in my backyard, as opposed to what you normally hear at a lot of city council meetings, 
community events, uh, neighborhood civic leagues, et cetera. It's like, you know, we're good with this, just not here, just not in our backyard, not in our community. Uh, Virginia Beach needs housing, just not in this location. But the problem is that every community says that. And when you say that to every project, you end up where we are now, which is in a housing shortage. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, you know, housing shortage isn't just an issue in the United States, especially affordable housing. I mean, not just, well, it's also in Canada. There's a, they have an issue as well. But it's not an issue just in our region. I mean, this affects everybody, right? Uh, from a commercial standpoint, it really affects us as in one of the factors that corporations look at when they're relocating to an area is, well, what's it going to cost for my workers to live there? Because that's a big component also what they have to pay their workers as well. So it all ties them together. Yeah. So let me start off with you, Seth. What do you think some of the biggest crises and, and issues confronting, say, developers are on trying to build workforce housing? I think that, you know, the price of housing is really just a, a multiplier of the price of land. And so what we have is a, you know, a regulatory regime that artificially increases the price of land, which drives everything else up. Uh, when land is able to be used to its uh, full capability, you can do four units, six units, eight units on an acre or more. Uh, you're able to decrease the size of units that you're building. Um, those are obviously more affordable. The less square footage you have and the less land that each unit takes up, the cheaper you can build it. So what we have is really a shortage of land, a shortage of land that can be developed uh, densely. And so as land prices increase, you know, housing prices increase along with it. So I think that's the biggest barrier right now is that there's not enough land that you can actually build housing on. Okay. And John, what about you? Yeah, I, I I agree with Seth. I think it is uh, definitely an issue of land availability. And um, as I know that your podcast reaches beyond our region here too, I mean, you can see it. I'm, I, I remember noticing in years past, I would travel to somewhere like Atlanta or Dallas, for example. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I remember being around in the coastal Virginia, Hampton Roads, Tidewater area and seeing new construction homes and they were at a particular price. I was like, Okay. And then I remember going to some of those other larger markets and you'd see larger homes for much cheaper prices. And even, you know, you'd see all brick homes. I go to Dallas, I'd see these all brick homes, these brand new homes in Dallas. And, and they were much cheaper on a price per square foot level than they were in Virginia Beach. And I was like, how, like, how, how are they accomplishing that? Same thing with Atlanta. Um, I remember going to Atlanta in, on a trip and just seeing some other housing projects and they had some really nice housing projects and the, the prices were much more affordable in general. Um, and that's because frankly, they had a lot more land to expand to, right? They weren't, they weren't as constrained. Our region here is rather constrained by physical constraints in many respects, because okay. we've got the ocean, you've got a lot of waterways, you know, you have to consider low lying areas, wetlands, and a lot of other, other physical elements that really limit, the ability of um, affordable and buildable land, especially in the re areas where people are living. <clears throat> and so I, I agree with Seth that, you know, the land cost is the first place that you look at when it comes to affordability. Obviously, building costs, it, you really, you, you think about land, you think about entitlement. So getting the approvals from the municipalities, mm -hmm. you know, the city or the county. And then you think about the actual sticks and bricks, like the building costs. And all three of those things factor in, but land, I, I agree, is the first place you start. The other, one of the other big barriers is the entitlement cost, right? What it costs just to get approval to build. 
And people, if you don't know, Virginia has a thing called proffers. And what that means is you're going to pay so much money per unit to the municipality to get approval for that entitlement. So you're going to pay, you know, it could be literally what's Virginia Beach proffered now? For well, unit, do you know? that, that's a that's a good question. It's actually it's been litigated in Virginia and proffers are actually the Virginia Supreme Court has decided that proffers are they're not playing out in the same way they used to. It used to be Virginia Beach actually wasn't um, as as strict on the proffers as, say, maybe Chesapeake, which is a neighboring city here. And in Chesapeake, you know, it would be it, there was a very, very uh, straightforward formula. You know, every for every student you had that the and they had a formula to determine if you have a new subdivision and then you have so many students coming up in that subdivision. It figured so many students and then they would you know, say so many dollars per student had to go into that. And then so many, you know, dollars per unit would have to go towards mm-hmm. infrastructure and building. If you had to maybe you had to build a pump station, maybe you had to, you know. There are all sorts of factors that go into, and then you get down to a, really a dollar number per unit. It could be 30,000 or 50,000 a unit, or it could be 5,000 a unit. It just depends on how the calculation go. And and then you'd have to do that. You'd have to give that proffer to the city to get approval. That proffer was a condition of that subdivision being approved. Um, with a more recent Supreme Court decision in Virginia, you don't have as strict a calculation. And Proffers are kind of it's there's a little bit more ambiguity um, and a lot of that arose out of northern Virginia where you'd have they say, OK, you can do this project. But four miles down the road, you've got to build a new school, mm-hmm. get that project approved. And one of the things that the Supreme Court had said in Virginia was. It, to have it, whatever you have to require of the builder developer, it has to be actually touching the property it has to be you can't get you can't you know a, a municipality can't make a, a builder developer go across the city to do something mm-hmm. when it doesn't have a direct relation to the project it needs to be touching the property essentially it needs to be immediately around the vicinity and so that proffers are really kind of in a, in a different place now in virginia than they have been in the past and so how that's how that's playing out is a little bit different but but that plays out in a lot of other states too, and they call them they can call them development rights, True. you know. And in some states, those are transferable. And so again, all of that is adding on. Now, the the justification from municipality tends to be, well, this subdivision is going to cost the city something, so we need to be able to to get that back. And the tax revenue, I think, a lot of the justification is that they're saying the tax revenue from the real estate taxes. So if you had an open field, and then all of a sudden you know, just add water, instant houses, right? You got a new subdivision where a field was before. They're getting tax revenue that they weren't getting before because a field, you know, open field is not going to generate mm-hmm. tax revenue like, uh, you know, say 50 houses would. on the. But the cities would say, or the counties depending, would say, well, we're not going to get enough from the tax revenue to cover the costs of having all the students that come in, having all the, you know, maintain all the roads, et cetera, et cetera. And that's originally how they justify the properties. But the entitlements are still such that, so you got the land cost and you have the entitlement cost. The entitlement cost is essentially the regulatory cost to yeah. get to approval. And that that has continued to go up and up and up and up and up. And that's that's been a huge barrier on top of land cost, but that's been another huge barrier to people being able to get things done. Um, for example, there's a local municipality who changed up their stormwater regulations 
who has switched things around such that to apply for a project to even be approved, you know, a new development project or redevelopment, either one, they have to go through a, a, an incredibly expensive and extensive stormwater regulation calculation, which it used to be in the process, you would do that once you were approved through possibly rezoning or whatever the entitlement mm -hmm. process, the conditional use permit, whatever the case may be. Once you got into engineering, then you would go through that and you'd have to, you'd still have to meet the stormwater regulations. Sure. But they're making, they're making the applicants do it on the front end, which is an enormous cost. I mean, it can cost tens, if not hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars on the front end. And you don't even know if you're going to get, if the project's going to go through. And so that that creates a whole nother barrier to people even trying to do what I mean, what we're talking about is affordable housing and you need people. It's, it's got to make economic sense unless you're having a municipality be the developer. And I, I personally haven't seen that. All. I mean, when it comes to housing, that's that's not a. It's not a route that I've seen be overly successful in years past um, yeah. on, on a broad level. You know, I mean, government subsidized housing, you know, tends to not be the most desirable housing. Oh, that's true. And you're getting into well, we you know, on the development side, we call cash proffers versus the entitlement proffers and everything. The right. cash proffer, it used to be just a rule of thumb, depending on the municipality. It could be anywhere from ten to $20,000 per, let's say you want to develop a subdivision. And you go in, the city said, well, we're thinking about it. Then you go, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this $15,000. It seems to be the normal <laughs> per lot to be able to develop this. Which, And then you also have all those entitlement proffers. There's all, there are also design proffers, too. Keep that yeah. in mind, people. Yep. Uh, now, I don't always disagree with that. Uh, Philadelphia, general revitalization, 30 years ago, I think it was, they created design proffers where 5% of your development budget in downtown had to go back into improving the aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So things like statues and green space and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And it really helped revitalize downtown. Yeah. Uh, Williamsburg has design proffers, mm -hmm. you know, things of that nature. But you're right. If you have to add, forget the entitlement process, but just the $15,000 in cash per lot, right. well, that drives up the price of the lot, of, the, of what you can build there. And Seth, to your point, we're talking about the density. I'm sure that's part of what you're thinking of as well. Yeah, I mean, and add, to add a point about regulatory burden, I think an important thing that and urban planning that's been happening is that as these tools, you know, urban planners have used proffers as a tool to push design, to push public space, things like that. Mm -hmm. What's happened is you've had things like the Supreme Court rulings about, uh, for example, Virginia, my understanding in the planning world is that um, they can't force you to provide those proffers, but it's part of a conditional rezoning. So what they what you've seen the decline of is a by right development. So you know what the zoning code says is developable by right has year after year become slimmer and slimmer and slimmer to now where you question whether anything can be by right. You need a conditional use permit to do just about any development. So what happens is that when you need that CUP, that's when you go through that process and they say, well, if you want a CUP, you're going to have to do all these things. And you're like, well, I thought those things weren't legal. And then they do their little wink and say, well, if you want us to support the CUP, <laughs> you're going to have to do these things. So I think what, what's happened is that, you know, it went from at least a straightforward, straightforward process where you could say, okay, yeah, it's pretty crazy. You're charging me 20 grand. And now it's like this ambiguous, um, every single thing requires a permit. Like when you go and actually look at what planning commissions are reviewing, you're like, I mean, we have like two hour meetings to go over 
whether somebody can have a restaurant that sells veggie burgers after 8 p.m. because that's a CUP or, you know, just as a random use there. Okay. Yeah. And you were talking about, you brought up earlier that housing prices are a factor of the land price, a multiple of the land price. So mm-hmm. if you have to throw another $20,000 per lot in there, I mean, a rule of thumb, you know, this is just a general rule of thumb. Your land cost can only be 25% of your house cost. So if I have to put $100,000 into the land cost between the acquisition, between all the soft dollars and entitlements and the proffers and the tap fees and everything else that go into it, if I'm up to $100,000 now, I have to build a $400,000 house there, which starts pricing outside of affordability. And I think also to the point about when we were talking about proffers, about, you know, the city argues that these just don't make financial sense for the city and without the proffers up front to pay for the investment. Um, I mean, the cities do calculations on that type of return on the investment. And it's true for the most part, at least in my experience, from what I've seen, most development, um, you know, it's hard to calculate that because you can't really look at residential and isolation because without the residential development, you can't have the commercial development. That, of course, pays more than residential and, and property tax. But the difficulty is that most of the regulations that make uh, those investments and those developments uh, financially, you know, un- unproductive is really a result of the regulations that the cities require in the first place. You have these huge right-of-ways that eat up, you know, a huge percentage of your site. You have huge, you know, onerous parking requirements. You go drive by a site, you have half of its parking, of which half of it is actually used at any time. The rest of it sits empty unless it's Black Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have all these things that are eating up, you know, into the point of stormwater. It's like we have 50-foot right-of-ways, but I'm being forced to regulate uh, you know, fill the entire site with sand and bring in 50 grand of fill just so that we can avoid some stormwater impact. But then, boom, across the street, it's like 50 miles of parking lots and huge right-of-ways that are having a huge impact on stormwater. So um, I think when you look at all of those in comparison, it's kind of hard, you know, it's a give-and-take situation. The city's putting regulations that drive up costs of the land. They also put in regulations that make it more difficult for things like stormwater Um and that make it more difficult to maintain in the long run. Obviously, a 20-foot pavement is going to be way less expensive to repave than 50 feet of pavement. And yet we require the latter for, you know, really no true benefit. Yeah. You know, it would have been interesting if we would have had a government official with us on that, get their perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. that's true. I mean, and I think we <laughs> it's it's easy. It's always easy to to kind of beat up on the person that the empty chair in the room, the person that's not here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've, I've worked with a lot of government officials and, and at the end of the day, it, to me, it's a bit of a perspective and an attitude because the government officials are tend to, they, they tend to be constrained by whatever the code is, the city code or the, the county yeah, code, you know, I mean, they, they've got to, they have to work within the bounds that they they've been given. Um, but it's also a bit of an attitude. And I've worked with some phenomenal, phenomenal city staff who are just like, I love this idea. Let's find a way to make it happen. Now, you, we might not be able to do, you know, and you go in and it's a collaboration. You know what I mean? It says, mm-hmm. this is great. Maybe this, because in again, in Virginia, you have to you have to approve every five years a comprehensive plan. And the comprehensive plan for the city or the county basically is supposed to map out where, where you want the city to go and give some generalized direction. Um, it's not like, I think, I believe it's, it's Houston, if I'm not mistaken, just did away with all zoning code and they just, they just, they spot like approve every every project is, you know, they kind of look at the character and nature of the project and there, there isn't zoning. 
no. there, um, unless that's changed very recently. But at the end of the day, um, you, you want to be able to go into a municipality and have someone who has some vision, you know. And I've also worked with municipalities, and the staff in the municipalities are just all they do is like their first answer is always no. Yeah. The first answer is to throw up a roadblock to what you're trying to do. And that's enormously frustrating for any, like, let's even zoom out of the idea of, um, a, you know, a development or real estate. It's just for a business trying to function in a city. Um, and so, you know, again, I've worked with a lot of great people in municipalities. I've worked with some other people mm-hmm. who have been, have been difficult. And you know, they've got to work within the bounds. And so I think one of the big things, and I'd, I'd love to hear Seth's thought on this as well, but one of the big things that I think we need to take a really hard look at the zoning codes themselves, you know, we, you, you need to, they've been somewhat rigid for a long time. I think adding flexibility inside the, the zoning codes, um, one, of, one of the municipalities in this area has a form-based code, but only for part of the city. But that form-based code basically says, hey, you know, you can have these dimensions and you can, you know, these setbacks, but it, it really streamlines. You don't have to go through any kind of entitlement process or rezoning or CUP. It just says, hey, you just got to meet these requirements. If you meet these requirements, you start going, you go right into into engineering, basically. So they, so it becomes, so it's by right, by nature. It, exactly. It, it is it is more of a, a that streamlined kind of by right, but that's, that's on a very limited geographic area. Sure. And so thinking through how we say hey let's let's as a municipal from the municipality standpoint how do we work with you know the business owners and people to say hey you know i mean listen i'm sure they they deal with applications all the time that are maybe off the wall and ridiculous and they have to say no and i Mm -hmm. I get that but (laughs) i couldn't believe i i represented a group in years past was at a municipality and it took it took seven years to get through rezoning and engineering for a 14 lot subdivision to get 14 wow. lots it, 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 which is just unconscionable it's ridiculous that that's that kind of now was that because of community lash back then n- uh no maybe about three to four months of it was community engagement wow maybe about three to four months. And, and okay. maybe let me be generous. Maybe it was six months, but at the most, there was a little bit of, you know, stir up from one of the neighboring mm-hmm. neighborhood, one of the neighborhoods next door. But, you know, again, business owners work through those problems. They're used to engaging. And I think the ones that are good at it work to engage. Guys, this is fascinating. I can't believe there are times already out. Uh, we're going to continue this uh, some more in the next podcast. So on that note, we're going to draw this one to a close. Uh, This is Tim Churchwell, the commercial guy, and we'll see you next time. The Business Casual Podcast is recorded in the Hurrah Studio and edited by Mark Harlan. 